Welcome to ASCP's podcast, Inside the Lab, where we discuss anything and everything that concerns today's laboratory professionals and pathologists. My name is Dr. Dan Milner, and I'm the Chief Medical Officer of the American Society for Clinical Pathology, and I'm one of your co-hosts. And my name is Dr. Loti Mulder. I'm the Director of Leadership and Empowerment at ACP, and I'm also one of your hosts. Today, we're talking about universal cancer screening, and we have a few very exciting guests. Hi, my name is Ali Lowe, and I'm a cytopathologist, a surgical pathologist, and director of the Circulating Tumor Cell Lab at Stanford University. Hi, my name is Jeff Gagan. I am a pathologist at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, and I'm medical director of the Next Generation Sequencing Lab. Hi, my name is Samaria Arcella, and I'm a hematopathologist and molecular geneticist, and I am the laboratory director for diagnostic molecular pathology at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Thanks, everyone, so much for joining us. We're really, really excited to have the three of you on. CME and CMLE will be available for listening to this podcast in the ASCP store. The American Society for Clinical Pathology is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. ASCP designates this enduring material for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Physicians should only claim credit commiserate with their extent of their participation in the activity. Dr. Maria Acello has disclosed the following relevant financial relationships, namely that she is a paid advisory board member for Bristol-Myers Squibb. The relevant financial relationships have been resolved. So let's just jump right into the questions. For the purposes of our discussion, the terms universal cancer screening, multi-cancer screening, or multi-cancer early detection, which is quite popular right now, all refer to tools or tests that evaluate a patient for many cancers in a single assay. What is the cutting edge or state-of-the-art status for these technologies, Maria? So um, universal screening uh, right now is using um, several molecular methods, and the technology is actually rapidly evolving uh, within uh, molecular diagnostics. And it uses several technologies that are primarily adopted to be able to identify cancer-specific markers. And this is particularly in uh, that are circulating in blood. So these are very highly sensitive techniques that can look for either signatures or mutations or a combination of markers within the blood that are being shed in circulation by the tumor. And there are several modalities that can be used, including looking for mutations in specific genes that are related to cancer, tumor-specific proteins, tumor or organ-specific methylation patterns. And even now, newer methods are being explored in research labs uh, that could potentially move into the clinical space to use platelet RNA profiles when they um, develop specific signatures, when when platelets come into contact with the tumor, also damaged white blood cells um, within the tumor, and even DNA from the microbiome that could have a specific signature that is related to the tumor itself. So lots of exciting developments in this field. Yeah, I was just going to say that the fact that multiple assays exist and that many of them are well underway in clinical trial evaluation is really impressive. And there's just been a lot of progress made in the past few years. So why isn't universal cancer screening a part of our toolbox now? And what gaps in our tools, data, and other resources do we need to fix before UCS becomes a functional part of cancer care? Who would like to take this one first? Jeff, go ahead. Sure, I'll jump in. Uh, I think the thing that's missing right now is data that shows this early detection actually improves patient outcomes. And that's what's going to be necessary to convince payers to get on board with this. 
Uh, we've been operating under the assumption that if we detect cancer early, um, that that will inherently lead to a decreased mortality, but I'm not sure that that has been proven at scale. And whether or not you actually be able to handle this as a universal cancer screening, as opposed to showing that this improves outcomes on a cancer by cancer basis. That's probably what you're going to have to demonstrate, that improvement in a cancer by cancer basis improves outcomes before payers will get on board. Yeah, I, I'll go next on this one. I, I think that universal cancer screening is still very early and there are so many developments and it's just developing very rapidly, which is, is hard to keep up with the scientific development and make this widely available to everyone, including this being able to be paid by insurance. Having said that, there are several gaps that I think are important to mention, not only related to the technology itself, but also to the specific biology of the tumors. So one of the most commonly cited limitations in introducing this this kind of test modality broadly is the fact that tumors at early stage release their components into circulation in very, very minimal amount. Uh, so there are issues of sensitivity and detectability of the signals. So some tumors themselves could also have high variability on how much is shed into circulation. And uh, this is also affected by many physical factors that are related to the patient, including their renal function, their circulation around the tumor, the degree of necrosis. Um, so tumors themselves have unique profiles and unique abilities to be able to show themselves in circulation, which is what's being measured. Having, having said that, there are several studies that show that at early stage, your ability to be able to detect the tumor is actually quite low and is different for different types of tumors. Uh, so in breast, for example, is actually much lower than it is in ovarian cancer. So I think that what I would say is that for the tumors that already have some type of screening that is working, this type of modality of testing may not be as rapidly evolving. But for those tumors on patients that have cancers that are not currently being screened, this would be a huge technology to be able to, to put out there because it allows you to do something that you cannot do right now. But obviously, being able to offer this type of testing to everyone there aren't labs that perform this type of testing. So we, you would be overwhelming the system as well. So, so there are a lot of, a lot of issues. So I would say the technology, the biology, the knowledge of the tumors themselves, do we actually know what kind of profiles we're looking for? And then on the economic side, is this actually feasible? Can the laboratories take on all of this work and provide this to every single patient? So yeah, mul multiple gaps out, out there that I think will remain to be uh, filled and, and establish a good way to do this in the next few years. Ali, any comment? I totally agree with both Jeff and Maria, and I think we're still just in the early stages of evaluating these assays and seeing what their performance is in real life. How and whether they can be truly applied is still kind of unknown. Um, I think a lot of these tests can suggest with a reasonable degree of certainty that a patient may have cancer, but I think there's still only a moderate ability to determine even the cancer site of origin with these methylation patterns and trying to say what organ the tumor is coming from. 
but far beyond even the organ of origin, according to our current standards for treating cancer patients, we know that tumor classification, right, not just the organ, is really what is required for appropriate treatment. And I really haven't yet seen this issue addressed in this kind of like universal cancer screening sort of space. So I think this is the possible space, like more far in the future, where circulating tumor cells or CTCs may be able to play a role as they kind of contain more of a complete complement of tumor information. And I hope, and what we're trying to work towards is to see how these sorts of cells can be analyzed, much in the way we analyze standard cytology specimens to figure out a diagnosis and tumor classification. But I think before UCS can be integrated into standard cancer care, I really expect that we'll require significantly more data on these specific cancer signatures and how they correlate with our known treatment algorithms. Jeff? Yeah, one follow-up point I wanted to make from what Maria was saying is I don't think we necessarily have good biomarkers for like understanding what we're looking at with some of these methylation patterns. Um, so I think the informative example that's been really well studied to this point is clonal hematopoiesis of indeterminate potential, where we're seeing all these things that are associated with myeloid diseases, but no one would say that someone with CHIP has cancer. And as people have looked at solid tissue that has similar features to hematopoietic progenitors like uh, intestinal crypt cells, they're seeing the same rate of age-related mutation accumulation. And the assumption that these mutations are going to lead to cancer, obviously those people with those mutations will have an increased risk of cancer, but actually identifying who is likely to progress versus who is likely to be stable with this clonal disease or just clonal cells for any number of years, I think is a very open question. Yeah, thanks so much, all of you, because I, I agree, you know, I think the gaps you're identifying and the challenges you're identifying are they're really crucial. There was actually, if you don't know, in January of 2020, just before the COVID lockdown, uh, there was a summit at Mayo Clinic about universal cancer screening. That was the term they were using at the time. Now, I think that same group is using multi-cancer early detection, which was oncologists and, and industry and adv patient advocates and et cetera. And I was fortunate enough to attend that. And as part of that summit, uh, there are about six or seven manuscripts that are coming out in this, this fall about this. And one of them is exactly what you've just done is gone through, like talked about all the barriers, et cetera. And we recognize them, we see them. But despite that, right, there are a handful of companies that are full press pursuing these, right? They are, they are getting ready to market these. And so, again, I think there's what we've just all discussed, which is here are the barriers for us, from our point of view, to provide quality care for our patients. Like, this is what we think we should know. And yet someone is still on the other side, ready to push forward something to market. So I think we, we have to kind of figure out how to resolve that. So when we think about, Maria, you mentioned this, and I wanted to come back to it and, and follow up. When we think about those cancers where we do currently have screening protocols, right, which are not only in place, but very embedded in the life of, you know, for example, women around breast cancer or cervical cancer or men around prostate cancer, for cervix, breast, prostate, breast, and colon, right, with colonoscopy, UCS-like approaches may create competition and redundancy if they work well. Like, let's assume we get over that technical barrier and they do work well and they're not prohibitively expensive. So what is your opinion on, on this and how do you see U UCS synergizing or even destroying these current approaches if, if the test becomes good enough? 
That's such a great question. <laughs> so I, I think that the, the current approaches that we have that are very, very targeted, they have really served us incredibly well in the setting of screening diseases that are very, very prevalent in the population. Um, but clearly the tests that we have right now, they're not they're not perfect. And they're also not addressing the overall and the large majority of the population, which remains unscreened for other more rare diseases or not, not even rare, but just not so prevalent. So the reason why these other approaches are being explored is precisely because we want to improve the current state of screening. And if the newer methods do provide a far superior approach and they're cost effective, one would really have to transition to these newer methods. Now, this transition is not going to be fast, and it may be that for the, for the current screening approaches that we have, those will remain to be the best while we introduce this new technology. But I think that we all have to be very open-minded that the technology is providing so many more capabilities, just the same way that next-generation sequencing allows us to do a full panel of uh, several genes to be able to, to figure out what's the biology of a specific tumor or to find targeted therapies that we may not have thought about. I think that this newer technology that is more broad and encompassing will really serve the population at the end. I don't really see it as destroying. I see it as becoming better at what we do and allowing the possibilities to happen to be able to serve our patients better. Ali or Jeff? I think we are going to have to do this on a tumor by tumor basis again, where I can conceive of, you know, methylation might be really good at finding certain tumors. And that grail paper that was published, it was really good at finding early stage pancreatic tumors, which is very encouraging, but it wasn't as good as some other tumors. I think just because the technology could apply to any tumor type any specific testing modality isn't necessarily going to be better or worse than other tumor types. You know, we've seen this in the therapy realm of, you know, when imatinib first showed efficacy in CML, there was this hype of, you know, every tumor type has these oncogenes, therefore we just drug them and we can cure all cancers. I would think assuming that we're going to cure all cancer types or detect all cancer types with a similar approach is a little naive. And we're going to have to demonstrate the superiority of this technology over current practice. Yeah, I, I entirely agree. I mean, I, I think that for those of us who practice medicine, we're, we're humbled daily by the biology of these tumors and what they, what they do. And when we think that we have the answer, clearly we don't. And there, there is just so much overlap. So I am, I am anything but humbled absolutely every day that I work. But I think that technology is only a tool. And medicine at the end is an art that has to be practiced with uh, recognizing that a test will not provide an answer. It's just providing you the capability of being able to do other things and study things in a different way. I think that, you know, and I, and I have given this example before, that if I find that a patient comes to the clinic and the patient is hypertensive, the fact that I just measured that one day, the, you know, their, their blood pressure doesn't mean that they are hypertensive and they need to be put on medication for their hypertension. It has to be a monitoring. It has to be a multi-modality approach. And I think that a single reading, as it was already brought up, 
doesn't constitute a diagnosis. And then final diagnosis has to be made in the context of all the other clinical and pathologic information that is out there. But the fact that we have the tools and that these may provide a very powerful amount of information that we can use better, I think is just very exciting. I think that um, these UCS techniques can only potentially improve, possibly supersede our current screening approaches, but we're really going to see how they play out, like Jeff said, on probably a tumor-by-tumor basis. For example, within cytology, the PAP itself was revolutionary, right, in preventing cervical cancer, but it itself is an imperfect test. So it has positive, negative, and indeterminate results. And because that gray zone still exists, there's room for improvement. And incorporation of high-risk HPV molecular testing has significantly improved our understanding of these indeterminate results and helped us to better focus our resources on the correct subset of indeterminate patients. So similarly, I would expect that some UCS approaches will be able to complement each other or even the standard screening approaches that we have right now. And I hope that in the future, we'll be able to figure out ways to integrate these in an effective and cost-effective manner for each patient. So we just talked about cancers where we do currently have those approaches, those screening approaches. What is your opinion on the value of universal cancer screening in instances where we don't currently use this approach at all? I can go first on this one. So as we previously outlined, cancer screening has historically been utilized targeting a single organ system with only a small subset of the most prevalent cancers. So um, breast, cervix, colorectal cancer, prostate cancer. And it also targets specific subsets of patients with a strong family history of cancer, smokers and patients with chronic liver disease uh, for you know, hepatoma, for example. But this is clearly leaving a very large portion of the population that and less common cancers without any type of screening. And this is really the population that we're going to have to that we're going to have to target because that is the population that is suffering the consequences of the cancer morbidity and mortality, and it's a huge at a huge economic price to society as well. That is a huge gap where universal screening is going to shine on the less common, which is affecting the smaller populations of this society that but altogether is going to be the much larger proportion. And just to put some quantity on that before we hear from Ali and Jeff, what we say when we're talking publicly to ministers of health or whoever, we're trying to get them excited about dealing with cancer in their systems, is that if in, in a perfect world with perfect screening, about 30% of all cancers would be eliminated. And with perfect prevention, meaning everyone did exactly what they could to prevent, about 30% would be prevented. So that still leaves 40% which we cannot prevent and we cannot screen for. And that's exactly the group that Maria is talking about. And of course, we don't live in a perfect prevention and screening world. So I think that that gets to the point of how there is a lot of room for improvement in detecting people. Ali or Jeff? Yeah, I can just say that I think something is always better than nothing. And like Maria had alluded to before, it's exciting to see that there are certain tumor sites like pancreas and ovary, which tend to have really aggressive late presenting disease that do not have current screening protocols, which are the ones that have the most promising findings for these sorts of cancer screening tests. So having the opportunity to identify these tumors earlier when treatment options still exist would really be revolutionary for those patients. 
I want to draw a parallel to HIV. And so much like the Western blot in HIV, you probably remember this. Certainly, I think at our ages uh, of the people on this call, it was probably during our training that this was happening. But relative to multi-generational ELISA assays, the limit of detection of radiology and pathology is much higher than for cell-free DNA or other subcellular molecular signatures of cancer, right? So there was that period where we would do an HIV ELISA and we would have to wait for the Western blot to go positive. And then as ELISAs got better and better, we just switched to doing two ELISAs and then we just got rid of the Western blot in general. And similarly, you know, as these tests develop and they become more sensitive than pathology or radiology, we could see that happening. So this creates a scenario where a patient may have a positive UCS result, um, but there is no conventional way to confirm that diagnosis. So what are some possible solutions to this that involve either additional tests versus alternative care pathways? For example, could two different UCS-like tests that are both positive be confirmatory, or are we forcing patients into a new watch and wait process as we bring these tests online? Yeah, I think we need more time. I think this technology is so new. We haven't had the ability to say, you know, we've detected something that looks like cancer in this patient. Did they go on to present as what we think of as the typical presentation for that cancer? And without the information, you really, I don't know if you can say accurately whether or not we are, you know, detecting this patient early and saving their life, or we're detecting something that is truly pre-malignant and subjecting them to potentially unnecessary chemotherapy or other care. Yeah, I think I entirely agree with Jeff. So I think the capacity for this higher sensitivity of detection potentially is amazing, but it does need to be interpreted in the appropriate context. And much of that context is not yet known. So we really need to better understand how the natural evolution of specific tumors relates to our ability to detect them with these new methods and with our standard methods. So it's like we have to wait for all of the data really to pan out for some of these patients. And I know that can be anxiety provoking, which I think is one of the huge drawbacks. But I think we don't yet know, to be honest, what the result will be with these positive tests what we should expect five or 10 years down the line. And therefore, we don't know how best to intervene. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that we we already go through some of this situation in medicine where you we do put, put the patients on a watch and wait process. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that because it just basically allows you to monitor the patient a little bit more closely. So then that way you can catch and address a cancer lesion when there's, when it's still at early stage while still potentially resectable or uh, or even treated with a non-invasive type of method. I mean, that would be the ideal thing to do. Well, obviously, a positive result doesn't doesn't mean anything. The same way that a, you know, say a JAK2 mutation in a patient doesn't automatically make them have any type of myeloid proliferative malignancy, right? Or the same way that if you find a KRAS mutation and that it, that doesn't automatically, if, and you're doing this on a patient for screening of colon cancer or lung cancer, that doesn't automatically mean that they have a malignancy and they could just have clonal hematopoiesis. 
a potential approach would be to, well, number one, if you have a mutation that could be relevant to other malignancies that would give you the possibility to test other sites. So say, for example, this KRAS mutation that you find on cell-free DNA, all of a sudden you have to figure out, well, you know, does the patient have a, a developing myeloid malignancy? Does the patient have a clonal hematopoiesis? And then you would want to test the blood cells for the same mutation and see what you have and do sequential test or, or, or do sequential testing and see if you have a rise on that mutation. So, so in my mind, I think that, again, a screening method is a screening method. And if there's nothing morphologically that you could address, then your capabilities for detecting lesions that are smaller will have to improve and get better at the same time that the technology is getting better for the molecular diagnostic tests. So at the end, I do think that a screening method has to be followed by many other tests. And if there is no other test that is any better, then that means that you have to use the same test or a similar test sequentially to prove that this is in fact a true finding. And if it is a true finding, you will see it rising and then you will address this with the patient as needed. But I, I think that we're still not necessarily there because a lot of these tests are not catching a diagnosis at stage one, but a little bit later on, but still at the time that you can intervene early without a lot of the morbidity and mortality associated with the treatment itself. Yeah. And I guess maybe one other thing to add is that perhaps certain positive screening results could prompt maybe a higher sensitivity evaluation than our standard screening methods are. So perhaps like some positive test with favoring a breast primary could prompt a breast MRI instead of a mammogram. So I think there are certain ways that we could integrate it into our current kind of treatment, but maybe almost for recurrence algorithms where we're looking at higher sensitivity, we have a sense of like what the tumor type is that we are looking for. And so it's not just like our normal mammogram cutoffs. We might try a different modality that's more targeted toward your organ of interest as the initial diagnostic approach in these higher risk patients. It still needs to be seen. Yes, you know, we need to just continue to acquire data on this and determine whether it actually is identifying tumors in a useful, meaningful way. Mm -hmm. Jeff? So I think Maria raised an interesting point in that when you're looking at single biomarkers or a small handful of biomarkers, there are easy ways to track sequentially. So if you see a KRS mutation and it's very little frequency is going up over time, um, especially across multiple tests, you can say, okay, this looks like it's getting worse or this is more concerning. And what I don't know yet is with some of these new modalities, with looking at widespread uh, DNA methylation marks, what kind of data exactly are we going to get in a laboratory or what are the clinicians going to get and how much are we actually going to be able to interpret of, you know, this is stable versus the previous report or this is getting better or worse and how well do we actually understand that data versus how much is this going into a black box algorithm is something that concerns me and I have no idea what the answer is yet. That's absolutely right, Jeff. And I, and I wanted to follow up with what Maria was saying as well in that regard, because, you know, we definitely can find precedent outside of this conversation for it used to be that we were the lab. And if a patient had a test, we did all those tests in order. We had control of that data and we could produce a report. But we've seen over time, even in cancer, where 
reference testing is done for different things. And then we receive that reference test. And now we, as the laboratory, have to act on that. And it seems like to me, and you know, I don't want to get into the, the details of each company, but it seems like to me that these companies are likely thinking they're going to market this you know, to insurance companies and populations of patients, maybe even at the primary care level, so that we, as the laboratory, are going to be receiving a result from someone not necessarily generating that result, right? And so I think exactly what you, what you were saying, Maria, and Jeff just commented on that sequence, how you respond to that for one cancer is complicated enough. If you now have 20 or more cancers that you're screening for or signatures or whatever the test is resulting, how that sequence you know, occurs is, is going to be a challenge. So what would be your thoughts on how we would you know, manage that incoming you know, kind of problem if we anticipate that patients are going to show up at our hospital with a report that says, oh, I have this, what can you do to help me? You know, what, what can we do now to mitigate that before this becomes more widespread as a, as a technology that people are interested in? Well, I think right now, I know I do this a lot, and I'm sure every molecular pathologist does this a lot, where people will bring you reports that you were not involved in at all and kind of curbside you. How do I think about this? How do I interpret this? And I think that needs to be more formalized because there's no professional component on a lot of molecular tests, a lot of this is being done algorithmically, just given right back to the oncologist or the ordering physician. And I've seen a lot of them really struggle with, I don't know what any of this means, how to interpret it. And I think we as a healthcare system need to do better and recognize that molecular pathologists or other trained professionals in this field have a lot of value add that you can't just do this massive data dump back to treating clinicians and expect them to interpret it properly. And we're talking about a lot in a screening situation, a lot more volume, a lot more results, you know, and, and still not, not probably not enough molecular pathologists today. So how do we, you know, do we need more molecular pathologists or as you were suggesting, Jeff, do we need a harmonized system? Like how do we approach that? I think there are a number of ways to do it. I don't think everyone who works in this needs to be a molecular pathologist. I think um, a type of professional we need to train a lot more of is genetic counselors and train them to think a little bit more outside the field of Mendelian diseases. I think that could be a very valuable resource. There are some pathologists, I can't remember any of the top of my head though, who have said all pathologists have to become molecular pathologists. You know, is this MCED, universal cancer screening, is that the alarm bell to say that we all have to become molecular pathologists? I think we all have to get comfortable with understanding molecular data and how to incorporate that into how we make diagnoses. But in terms of keeping up with how this data is generated, how the library prep works, how each company handles things, what are the pluses and minuses of each individual assay, I do nothing but molecular pathology, and it's sometimes hard for me to keep up. <laughs> and trying to do any, any other skill in pathology and stay current on this and be a, an expert, I, it's too much to keep up on. I, I think that uh, one, one of my fears, and I see this right now, there is a, a lot of direct-to-consumer testing. And there is also, as these um, screening methods become available, it will be the primary care physician who is sending these things out. And for the primary care physician to be in tune with everything that is going on for every single type of cancer and to really understand what to do with these 
is going to be extremely, extremely difficult. So I think that, you know, going forward, well, number one, every not it's not just a pathologist that, that is going to have to become a molecular pathologist. I think that every single physician is going to have to embrace the molecular world and understand what all of these things mean. But I think it's even more scary for the patient who is now being hit with all these, again, direct-to-consumer testing, oh, this is the best, you know, test for you, and these are the results and nothing. It's just the results, and then they have to deal with all of this, and they go in panic and go to every single website that could have a reputable or not-so-reputable information. So I think that um, there is so much that we need to do. And unfortunately, a lot of these molecular tests are also becoming money-making businesses that are being paid by the patient directly if they're targeting, you know, if they're if they're actually being marketed that way. And I think that as a group of physicians, we really need to be the advocate for the patient. Uh, when these tests are offered. What to do with all of these? I don't even know. I think that this, that was the scariest question you actually asked. Uh, <laughs> I'm actually out of words for most of the m- most of the question because I don't think that any of us know how this is going to pan out with the way that things are growing and, and the tests uh, being made available. Yeah, I, I feel, you know, I, I appreciate that, Maria. I think you're, thank you for your honesty because when we when we have these conversations, well, certainly when we had these conversations at Mayo and in the ensuing hundreds of email conversations about trying to write these papers, I'm often, you know, using the words disruptive innovation, creative destruction, and there's a lot of pushback, a lot of pushback from different aspects of the community about that. Because if you consider these tests from a, you know, the point of view of the U.S., it's very difficult to understand this exactly as you just said, like we need more data. We have to understand how to integrate it. We have to make sure we're doing the best for the patients. We can't, you know, we, we have to have the sequence of, of working them up correct. We, we think about all those things. But when we when we take that lens away and we look at, say, for example, sub-Saharan Africa, where cancer systems just don't exist in a lot of places, this kind of a test would be, you know, incredibly disruptive. I mean, even if it didn't work that great, it would be incredibly disruptive in providing not a universal cancer screening test, but a universal diagnostic approach because they don't have the infrastructure to do histology and immunistic chemistry and all these other molecular tests and things. So it's a double-edged sword, right? We, we see the value, you know, if we have the data and the process and how to integrate it in our own systems, but when we flip it over and say, but in a resource limited setting, this could be incredibly helpful in moving this forward, uh, you know, and, and, and actually saving lots of patients' lives because we know stage three, stage four is what they present with. So I think it, it's, it's a complicated topic and it's definitely sticky when you're talking to people in the U.S. because they see all these obvious barriers of technology, but if we remove those barriers, now there's these obvious challenges to our existing infrastructure and system that we have to have an answer for, which I think is, which is scary. It's always scary, but disruptive innovation is always scary. It's always scary for somebody, for someone else, it's a money-making situation, but for someone else, it's always going to be scary. Yeah. So my follow-up question is, what is the role of laboratory professionals in helping with these forthcoming large molecular screens to improve the patient's journey? I think we're going to get a lot of questions of, you know, I have this patient and they were told they have, I don't even understand how this data is going to be passed back to the patient, but, you know, they have an X percent chance of developing breast cancer or whatever else. And then what needs to be done next? Do they need a biopsy? Do they need some sort of other kind of follow-up lab assay and kind of understanding what 
best practice is going to be for different stages and different results, depending on what was tested and what are the other patient comorbidities. It's, I think the pathologist has to be an advocate for proper utilization. Yeah, I think that's right, Jeff. And and I would say, you know, with regard to to laboratory professionals, our, you know, molecular technologists, our other people that work in the lab, you know, there's clearly going to be a situation where the pathologist is there to make some high level decisions about what, you know, what's going to happen with treatment, maybe in conversation with an oncologist based on all the data that's there. But there's all that navigation that you're just describing before, which might be a sweet spot for someone who understands lab testing and all the tests that are available, but isn't necessarily, you know, going to, they can help create algorithms or processes, et cetera, to navigate things through the lab so that when a person gets to an endpoint, then you can say, okay, now the pathologist needs to come in and say, yes, this is the right thing to do. So I think we, you know, we're seeing that a little bit, even with things like biomarker testing for immuno-oncology, where, you know, it helps very greatly to navigate someone's tissue through the system because it can get lost very easily just trying to get a send out test or whatever. And when you add molecular to that and suddenly multiple pathways because of multiple tumor possibilities, you know, I think there will likely be a very powerful role for, for not just the pathologist, but everyone who works in the lab to be part of that process if this data is going to be so complicated. Yeah, I think definitely we as pathologists and just laboratory specialists in general, we are the ones who are often kind of like the educators and the references for our clinicians who don't know what to do with the information that they're given. And I think probably, especially in the early stages, when we think it is premature to really be invoking clinical action based upon these results, we need to ensure that our clinicians and other providers are aware of how little information there really is out there and how there is not great actionable indication based on the results that they're receiving, despite the pressure that they might be receiving from their patients and the concerns. So I think it's going to be a messy time. um, And I think we should be prepared for it. And I think we should also prepare our clinicians for it too, until it's really mature enough to be ready for implementation. But it sounds like it's coming sooner than that, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you, you know, if you follow what's happening with these companies, and again, I, I won't be mentioning any names, but when you follow what's happening with these companies and, you know, what other companies are looking at those companies and their technologies and their projected markets and all that sort of stuff, you know, which is not something that we typically waste our time thinking about as academic pathologists, you know, most of the time, but this is what they do. The potential market for this is crucially dependent on a lot of work from all of you, right? And, and I think that's what's a real, you know, a real barrier that I'd love to hear some feedback from you guys on is if you, as you were saying earlier, Ali, you know, we have to have the data to understand X, Y, and Z. And Jeff was saying, well, we don't know about early, if we detect something really early, we don't know if it's going to turn into a cancer. And Marie was talking about the, the natural evolution of tumors, et cetera. But if we step back from that and say, well, who's going to generate that data that's going to actually show that these tests work? Well, it's the pathology laboratory and the oncologist, right? They're the ones that don't have to have patient data to follow that up. So how do we resolve that where we as part of the system in taking care of patients are going to generate data that may then challenge what we normally would do. And, and I think, again, it gets back to this concept of disruptive innovation and, and participation in that process. But I'd love to hear you know your thoughts on that. Like, are you willing, for example, to engage in a clinical trial with an MCED that could potentially 
suddenly screen for 20 rare cancers that we can't screen for now, knowing that once that is in place, it will decrease, for example, your surgical pathology volume by 40%, you know, as an example. How would you respond to that? Well, I think at the end, the the importance is really if you are, and we're all the patient advocates. So I, if what we want is for patients not to be sick and not for us to not have more samples. If, you know, maybe it will decrease the number of samples that we will see morphologically because now you don't have them, but you also are increasing the number of tests that you will have to interpret, right? The focus becomes a little bit different. And then this all goes back to the fact that pathologists should absolutely embrace the molecular world because I don't think that there is a way to go back. And maybe the focus of our practice is going to change to be more of an educator and to be the, the person who's the liaison in between the clinical side and the technical portion of it. I think at the end, the work that is being done is going to require, and, and, and for us to put something like this in place, is going to require, to require a multidisciplinary approach where the pathologist is the pivotal component that understands the technology understands the limitations and can reach out to the clinicians and be part of the group much more than what we're being right now. I think that a lot of the times, particularly for clinical laboratories, you're seeing as the person who mans the lab, but not necessarily an integral component of that day-to-day management of the patient, or at least is perceived in that way. And maybe this would just give us an opportunity to become a more active member of what the clinical team is so that, you know, we're going to provide more of a focused attention on what to do with the results instead of what to do with the sample. That's absolutely right, Maria. I mean, I I feel like, you know, we have to step back to those those comments I made earlier about quantity, you know, about detecting, you know, 40% can be detected, et cetera, et cetera. If suddenly these screening tests are even... 50% 50% more effective than what we have now, which as Ali said, is, is nothing for some of these cancers. That's a lot more volume. And so someone has to interpret those tests and that's our wheelhouse is lab interpretation and how to use those tests. So I think it's, as you said, it's a scope of practice change that I think people, you know, maybe need to have to be ready for. Ali or Jeff? I think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens with the regulatory component of these kind of tests, where because everyone agrees that this is a societal good of multi-cancer early detection, I think these companies have been given quite a bit of leeway in terms of go ahead, start to market it, start to offer this, because we agree that your end goal is a societal good. But I think they also have a conflict of interest of, you know, we want to sell as many of these as possible for as many indications as possible. And proving whether or not they work or not is a huge effort that's going to require longitudinal tracking and a lot of patient data, which I think everyone in precision medicine realizes is the big sticking point. We can find out which genes are mutated in cancers in thousands and thousands of samples, but in terms of how does that impact outcome, how does it impact drug response, that's been a lot harder to measure. So to assume that the companies are going to keep track of their data and then let us know what happens, I think is naive and it's going to play out much more of there needs to be cooperation between the labs performing the diagnostics and the entire healthcare systems to keep track of everything and report whether or not these are effective. Yeah. But I, I think that we're going to be struggling with this for a very, very long time, the same way that we're even 
struggling right now after so many years of having instituted the PSA, uh, which was initially for you know, monitoring of patients that already had disease and is now being utilized for a way of screening patients. Uh, so I think that there has to be more, more oversight and maybe we as pathologists can be part of that oversight for tissue. I mean, for not now for tissue utilization, but for test utilization as a whole. I think there is just a lot of exciting opportunities for the pathologist to incorporate in different positions in what's going on right now in the science. But I, I don't think it's going to be an easy road because it's just moving so much faster than what one would expect. And it's always, it's always hard to keep up with the information as it's coming, when it's coming all at once like this. And Allie, I have a very specific follow-up question for you. So you mentioned circulating tumor cells versus these multi-cancer early detection methods, which are, which are obviously different. Do you see CTC as a viable bridge between MCED res- results and traditional routine testing? Like, do you see that as something where that could be one of the stepwise pieces in the sequence that we need to work on and develop? Or do you think that those technologies are not aligned? I actually think they do inform each other. Definitely the sensitivity of these MCED tests is much, much higher than CTCs. So they have many fewer circulating tumor cells and they tend to be seen more at later stages. They can be detected at early stages, but there is just a limit to how much blood you're actually going to take from a patient, right, in order to acquire the cells of interest. And I do think if we could look at blood samples in a more informed way, in a targeted fashion, possibly dependent upon MCED results, then I think it'll just have a higher yield. So I guess to me, it does seem like a definite viable potential future ad um, where we could find tumor cells before our limit of detection by radiology or pathology could possibly exist in cancers that are tumor cell shedding. I think there is a variety just like in uh, molecular techniques of how much, like how many tumor cells come from certain cancers. Some happen to give a lot of tumor cells and some are very, very stingy on how many they shed. But there is going to be a subset of cancers that will be very high yield for. And I think we will be able to analyze them the way we do our standard cytology specimens. I think it's going to be a complement, essentially. Like if in certain subsets, it'll be useful and those are the ones that we should pursue. And I think as we think about integrating all of these technologies, we just need to remember that our main goal in cancer care is really to preserve life, right? Maintain function for these patients, do it in a more holistic way where we figure out the best way to implement these new technologies for each individual and how it can add value to them personally in their life and not be a cause for stress or anxiety that may be not necessarily fruitful, still is going to require a lot more information. But I think it would be great to see how these new techniques can develop in parallel with or add information in parallel with our standard techniques and potentially in the future see how they can become the new standard if they can really add a lot of value that way. So considering that there are multiple companies with UCS in the process of launching, 
what do pathologists and laboratory professionals need to know about these tests that may affect daily practice in the immediate future? I think that you need to know what each one is doing, what are the strengths and weaknesses, so that if an oncologist comes to you or even a primary care physician comes to you and says, I have a patient who's worried about X, you can kind of guide them and say, well, the most promising technology for that is that, and this is the company that offers it. Every now and then I'll encounter academic pathologists who feel like keeping up with the the reference lab side of it. It's like, oh, they're the bad guys. We we have our own things. We need to focus on lab develop tests and things we can bring up in-house. And I don't think that's going to be viable moving forward. Ellie? No, I was just saying that although I do believe there is a future for this, I don't expect the adoption really to be imminent. And I think we just need to be aware of what's going on and continue to keep updating ourselves as more information is available. Maria, any closing thoughts on that? Yeah, I I agree. I think that for the time being, I, I feel that pathologists and laboratory professionals just need to be aware of the technology, the limitations, and the possibilities. Because it really usually happens that these tests are out there, they're being used, you obviously get the results, and but the the information on the technology itself is very is still very limited. And of course, you don't know what to do with the results. I think that if we if we understand it better and we understand the limitations, that is probably the best way that we can be a successful pathologist and be able to communicate actively with our clinicians because most of the questions are going to be, what is this telling me and what do I do with it? So at the very basic, just understand understand what the test is testing, the capabilities and possibilities for false positives, false negatives, pitfalls of every kind. So yeah, I, I, I think that following the, uh, the literature, making sure we read as much as possible and calling the people that are publishing on this is probably the best thing to do. Jeff? Yeah, one quick follow-up point to what Maria was saying. I think it's important that pathologists stay engaged with their professional societies and push some of these reference labs to share their data and make it accessible so that we actually can interpret it. I think, um, again, without mentioning specific names, there are some companies that are trying to follow the example of a company that was testing for BRCA1 and made all the mutations and information about it proprietary as a way to discourage competition. But I think the entire field is going to be better off if we really understand what these biomarkers are telling us and make it less of a, a black box. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think we, you know, our motto at ASCP is stronger together. And that's obviously relates not only to us as institutions and organizations, but also data around patients and, you know, having all the information in a very clear and transparent way is always the best way to take care of patients. And certainly we will do our part at ASCP to provide as much education as we can on this topic as it evolves, but we look to you as our experts um, as we continue to do that. So thank you guys so much for participating. This I think was extremely interesting and very helpful. I've been talking about this, as I said, since January of last year with non-pathologists mostly, except for Maria. So having the conversation with some actual pathologists has been fun today. And I think that I know I've learned a lot and I'm sure our audience has as well. Please tell your colleagues about the podcast and remind them to subscribe through their favorite podcast aggregator so they don't miss any of our podcasts coming up. 
And don't forget that you can receive CME and CMLE credit for listening to our podcast by looking for Inside the Lab in the ACP store on our website at www.acp.org.